0818-715-815. Hello, good afternoon. You're very welcome to Lifeline. Colourful Mungine here. You can get us on 51551 for your texts. WhatsApp us 87 or if you're WhatsApping us from Northern Ireland, you can get us on 08457 853333. Email us at joe at rte.ie. Now, people might look at the papers today, might have seen uh, remarks by the Minister of State for Land Use and Biodiversity, Pippa Hackett, saying that if wolves were introduced into the country, at the moment, they would all be shot. Why would wolves be introduced into the country at all? Well, the proposal that was floated back in 2019 by her party leader, Eamon Ryan, when he was talking on a dull motion on forestry policy was that wolves would be introduced as what might be called an apex predator so that they could help biodiversity as well as having been previously a native species in the country. Now, there was a bit of a backlash against that, but as it is on the front of the papers today, let's hear from somebody who believes that wolves would enhance the life of the country. Killian McLaughlin, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Uh, what's it like living as you do near a pack of wolves? It's fabulous. I mean, it's a privilege to spend time with these creatures every day in the forests of Donegal, believe it or not. We have a pack of wolves here at Wild Ireland. And how many wolves are you talking about? We have three wolves in the pack here. Right. And how free are they to roam over how wide an area and how is that constrained, if at all? Well, unfortunately, the way things are in Ireland at the moment, it's not possible to let, allow the wolves to roam around the Donegal Hills. But we do have a nice natural habitat for them here at Wild Ireland, albeit surrounded in a fence. But it's a great opportunity for people to come meet the wolves and learn about wolves in Ireland, how they went extinct and all the negative things that happened since we've lost our beautiful wolves that were native to Ireland. And we also discussed what the future might be for wolves in Ireland. What, what did happen to wolves in Ireland? Because their names are in place names and the like around the country. So they were very much a presence here until when? They were indeed. The ancient Irish people respected the wolf. They called them Maktir, which means son of the land. And, you know, the ancient people understood how important these animals were in the ecosystem and even their name, Akhtir, son of the land, it was a, almost a term of royalty and respect. And it was only when um, Oliver Cromwell came and he put a bounty on their heads that there was proper extermination of these animals from Ireland. And even, the, even then, it wasn't the Irish people that hunted them because they still respected and revered the wolf. It was wolf hunters came from outside of Ireland and collected a huge bounty back in the 1600s and the early 1700s. And eventually the last wolf was killed in 1786 in County Carlow. And what was the bounty for? Was it for protection of, of livestock or was it for the hide, the pelts of the wolf? Uh, like like, uh, like most things, it was about misunderstanding. So there were rumours that when the British and the Irish were fighting with each other, that the wolves were fighting alongside the Irish. Uh, I think that was one of the main drivers because when the English came to collect their dead from the battlefields, they could see the wolves were, were eating the dead bodies and they thought that the wolves had killed them, which wasn't the case. They were scavenging on them. There were also fairy tales and myths and rumours that Irish people were able to transform into wolves and and attack the English soldiers. So there were all sorts of um, 
hysterics about these animals in the Irish countryside and that was a big part of the reason that they were exterminated at the bequest of uh, Oliver Cromwell. All right, well, we get to the future in a moment, but what about, you know, what about the present where, you know, you're living beside wolves? What function do they fulfil in the area of habitat that you've set up for them? So at the moment, they're here for educational purposes at Wild Ireland, uh, and we offer sanctuary to lots of different animals that were once native to Ireland. We had a very healthy, functioning ecosystem here in Ireland up until just a couple hundred years ago, which in the grand scheme of things isn't all that long ago. And we're only seeing the negative knock-on effects now of the lack of having the wolf in the ecosystem. And what would you say the main? Educate. Yeah, what would you say the main negative is that that that's, that you're seeing as a result of not having wolves? Yeah, so there's lots. Of, the main thing is the ecosystem is falling out of balance. So we have deforestation caused by an overpopulation of deer. We have an increase in the population of meso predators, which are small carnivores like foxes, um, and they when they overpopulate, they eat a lot of the endangered ground nesting birds like curlews and corn cricks and things like that that nest on the ground. Whereas when the wolf is in the environment, those mesopredators like foxes are kept at the perfect level uh, and that has knock-on positive effects for the ground nesting birds. Uh, the deer in the environment are kept at the perfect level as well so that gives the chance for forestry and native trees to regrow. Wolves are ecosystem engineers. In other words, when they're reintroduced back into an environment, they actually change it for the better. So they allow trees and forests to regrow and they actually create habitat for themselves and a habitat for other animals. And that was demonstrated in Yellowstone National Park when they reintroduced wolves there in 1995 and they saw all sorts of knock-on positive effects, things that they never even envisaged could happen. Like, for example, there was a reduction in floodwaters running down into the cities further down um, because the wolves because the wolves had created habitat upstream for animals like beavers and more trees growing, there was less erosion, slowed water down before it got to the people that lived downstream. They also noticed a, a reduction in diseases amongst livestock, believe it or not, because deer are pretty good vectors of TB, as are mesopredators like badgers. Whereas when wolves are in the environment, they take those sick animals out of the population. And the way wolves do that, they have a very clever way of finding out which animals are sick and which animals are healthy. Basically, they just chase them and the healthy animals get away. A wolf will never catch a healthy deer, but the the ones that lag behind are the sick ones or the old ones and they're taken out of the population. So they've seen a reduction in TB, Lyme Lyme disease, which affects people. Lots of people in Ireland suffer from Lyme disease. Um, This is a a disease that we got from ticks. Exactly. Yeah, but it's deer ticks. And when they bite people, they pass that disease on to humans. Um, and there's lots of studies that back this up, you know, where, they, where they've studied animal populations in areas where there's healthy populations of wolves. They notice that there is a much greater reduction right. in disease. And when, when you see the remarks by the minister saying that wolves would probably be shot, I mean, could you see why? Because if a wolf could take down a deer and control the population of animals that could probably, you know, do a bit of fighting back like foxes. Um, What chance would a sheep have? Well, this is a, you know, it it, it all comes back to education at the end of the day. And when I make these comments, I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm not trying to frighten anybody. Sometimes when we talk about opening the gates and let wolves roam the Wicklow Mountains, like comments that were made by politicians, all that does is get people's back up. We need buy-in from everybody. The consequences of climate change are 
in direct response to the way that we treat the planet. And we have eradicated a lot of our natural resources, our native forest and our native animals. We need to understand that this is a greater inconvenience to farmers than the reintroduction of wolves. We've seen one of the wettest years we've ever had in Ireland last year, and that has made life very difficult to farm. And that's going to continue to get worse. So we need buy-in from the farmers. We need buy-in from everybody. We need an understanding that this is in everybody's best interest and the best interest of our future. If we want to continue to be able to farm alongside uh, farm, we need to do it alongside nature. And by reintroducing the wolf, that is going to balance nature. It's going to allow us to sustainably live on this planet. It's going to help the negative effects of climate change. And if everybody is with us and we stop listening to fairy tales and scaremongering about these animals, that they're going to, you know, they're not going to sneak into our grandparents' bedrooms and eat our grannies or huff and puff and blow our house down. Um, Education is really important. And anybody that would shoot the wolf, it would come from a place of miseducation or not understanding the ecosystem. And what, what, so was, we what, would, what, what was the year you said that the wolves became extinct in County Carlow? 1786, was it? Correct, yeah. 1786. Yeah. Okay, well, let, let's hear a sound that hasn't been heard in the wild in Ireland since 1786. Jerry Loftus, um, you're in County Mayo. You're a, a farmer of, of sheep and cows. Would you welcome the return of that uh, that sound to the hillsides of Ireland? <laughs> no, I doubt it very much, um, Colin. Um, look at Mr. Madlockham there has painted a lovely picture of the general public of wolves in our communities. And, uh, you know, he talks about his own set up in Dundee and into the enclosed area and all that type of thing. And also referring back to ancient times, and that's one of the points I would like to make, because in them times we did not usually, we didn't eat meat at the time, we didn't farm, we didn't have farms at the time, we didn't have sheep and cattle at the time, any meat you ate was shot in the wild. Uh, and it's a completely different different scenario from then to now. Like, how in the God's name could you farm sheep or cattle alongside wolves in the countryside like it's it's absolutely appalling stuff that we're trying to sell this to the people of rural Ireland and um, while we have nothing against what he's doing there the, the control etc etc there will be no buy-in from farmers to this ludicrous idea if it's simply that as far as I'm concerned unless as we now stand as regards our hills and where hill farming is going and a wild Atlantic nature project agreed to by farming organisations and now acres where it looks like there will be massive reductions of sheep on our hills and a massive decimation of our way of life. Look at, we have no problem with nature, we have no problem with nature restoration, we'll do our part for climate emissions and biodiversity and all of that type of thing, but we're not going to be walked on either. Now, we're not going to be running for our property, we're not going to be just, you know, because some people had this idea and he also mentioned what Pippa Hackett said about, you know, about the deer. Now, deer carry a different formula of TB than to cows. Badgers don't produce TB. There's no good blame on badgers because the TB is produced by cattle and carried by badgers. But the main idea for the introduction of wolves in this country is to cull the deer population. That's definitely one of the ideas. 
Now, what do you make of that idea? Because if people if people are you know planting forestry plantations, maybe investing in native Irish species, there's been I think enhanced grants for afforestation at the moment and if deer get into those plantations and destroy the saplings and set people back on on their investment, they're farmers too I suppose maybe they'd welcome the introduction of wolves Well well, look at, we have, that's what we will be promoting is native oil trees and broader trees etc and all of that but the problem we have now is the problem we created we have 800,000 hectares of secret school plantations Created by, Ponzi, by a Ponzi scheme with Irish taxpayers' money to make money for the rich, to buy land, tax-free, fences, draw subsidies, etc. All of that type of stuff. Now, nothing lives in a spruce forest. It's a biodiversity dead zone. We're still promoting it. We're still planting it. It's thick alive now all over the country with deer. And we cannot, cannot cull deer in a spruce plantation because why? Because you can't get into it. So the send, send, send in the wolves. They, well, that's the point I'm making. That that is the, one of the ideas they want to bring wolves back here. The only way you can get into a secret zoo plantation is by crawling on your hands and knees because the trees are so planted so close together. The deer now is playing havoc, of course, all over the country. And my proposal to Mr. Lockdown and to Pippa Hackett is we have 800,000 hectares of this junk planted mostly on the most valuable soil in the world, on peat soil. We want that removed. We want all of this land to go back to it in its natural form, replant what's suitable with broadleaf trees. And if you have broadleaf trees and natural woodland, anybody can walk through them. Anybody can shoot deer. Anybody can cull deer. And that is the only way this can be done. Right, but, but you're, you're, you're idea, setting your face absolutely against wolves, even while the, the Sitka spruce is in place uh, in, in these places. And we're not debating the merits or demerits of that or otherwise. It's looking at, at, at the merits yep, or demerits exactly. of wolves. But it, even, even with the Sitka spruce plantations in place, before they're cut down, before they're replaced with broadleaf native species, you still wouldn't countenance the reintroduction of wolves, even in fenced-in areas, in order to protect sheep. No, I, I never said that, Colum. We have no problem with wolves if they're going to be in a fenced in enclosed area. We have no problem with that whatsoever. But the idea, that is not, that's not what's proposed here. The idea here, that what's proposed, is to introduce wolves into rural Ireland, uh, you know, uh, without any control, and, and expect the communities and the farmers and the people of rural Ireland to accept that. We, we, we do not accept, we will not accept that. All right. Well, okay, well let's, just, let's, let's just clarify that, because, I mean, at the moment, Pippa Hackett is, say, is, is not saying that. She's saying the time is, is not right because of what would happen to the wolves, even if they were to be reintroduced, although it, it, not ruling out the possibility that the circumstances might be different further down the road. Killian McLaughlin, what's, as an initial stage of things, could you see wolves roaming more broadly but in a constrained area or would you like to see it get to the point where they would just be allowed roam freely? Yeah, so I'd just like to clarify a couple of things, okay, and, and um, the other guest there, I just want to clarify that I'm not proposing putting farmers off the land or anything like that. This will actually ensure a future for farmers on the land by restoring the ecosystem. Now, 
he made a point there that we weren't farming when we had wolves here. That's that's completely incorrect. We have farmed alongside wolves for thousands of years. Farming in Ireland goes back thousands of years to the Katie Fields in Mayo, which is thousands and thousands of years ago. And there were wolves in Ireland up until 230 years ago. Now, we didn't start farming only 230 years ago in Ireland. So we have farmed alongside them. They do farm alongside them in almost every country in Europe. Now, Ireland is one of the few countries in the EU that doesn't have wolves. So our neighbours in the continent are able to do this alongside the wolf. Um, so that, that I just wanted to clarify that point. He made a point there about sheep being taken off the hills. And, and farmers are going to lose money. And these, these measures have been put in place to tackle climate change. And farmers are losing an income. Well, if you bring back wildlife and ecosystem restoration, maybe those farmers that have lost income from hill farming could diversify maybe into ecotourism. Um, wolves open up huge revenue streams when they're in areas. People come to see them. People come to photograph them and photograph the nature that comes with wolves. So there, this is a broader picture. This is not just about bashing farmers and by no means am I, I doing right, that. But, I just wanted to clarify uh, that. In, in 2022 though, the French, and this was reported by Le Monde, they said 30 years after the wolves returned to France, coexistence with farmers remains a challenge. There's about, I think, 1,100 wolves in France and they say France is still struggling to find a formula for peaceful coexistence. One farmer interviewed in France said he lost 137 sheep when a group of sheep fell off a cliff during a wolf attack. I mean, you're you're not ruling out the possibility of sheep falling prey to wolves, are you? I mean, the whole expression, a wolf in sheep's clothing comes from somewhere, doesn't it? Look, it's not, it's not, a, it's not about being convenient. Nature is going to be inconvenient and it's being very inconvenient at the moment with climate change. I mean, I'm sure your other guests will, will accept that this has been a particularly challenging year to farm in Ireland, given the given the, how wet the year was. Now, France is a very interesting one. There was another paper, and I just I don't have it in front of me to quote it exactly, but there is no requirement in France for farmers to prove that their livestock was killed by sheep. And there was an article came out in a French paper there. Killed, this week. killed by wolves? Do you mean? Sorry, you were saying killed, that, killed by wolves? Yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's no there's no requirement to prove that the wolf was killed by or sorry the sheep was killed by a wolf. Um, they, they, they have a very handsome compensation scheme there and sometimes the compensation scheme is greater than the price that the sheep are making at market. So there was a there was a, an investigation into this and it turns out a lot of farmers in France are claiming their sheep were killed by wolves and they actually weren't. So that's that France is particular because Italy next door doesn't have the same level of compensation and they don't have the same level of wolf kills. So right. France, is, France is kind of a unique... Um, example that, that doesn't accurately reflect what might be going on on the ground. All right, Jerry, we'll come back to you in a moment. I want to go to John Howard in, in Formoy. John, uh, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. What What are your thoughts? You're a, you're a farmer yourself. What do you farm and what are your thoughts on getting wolves back into the countryside? I would be absolutely against it because of most of the reasons there that the Mayo farmer said. Um, Ireland is a different country today than what it was back in the 17th and 18th century. It's it's just ludicrous to even think about bringing wolves back. I mean, the, the, he mentioned the figures in France there. Uh, I heard on the radio, I can't verify it for certain, but I think it was something like 15,000 domestic animals were killed by wolves in France in 2022. And even in Europe, they have accepted that the wolf is becoming a problem and they have downgraded its protective status a notch in the last couple of months even. 
All right. And do, so you, do, do, do you take on board what Killian is saying there that maybe there's a a perverse incentive to attribute attacks that may be down to unsupervised dogs to attribute them to wolves in order to avail of uh, a generous compensation scheme? I wouldn't accept that at all. No, I would not. Right. I don't. I mean, what would your specific fears? Because one of the 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 proposals has been that an extra foot added to fencing would keep the wolves out. Not at all. It is inevitable that anything that was reintroduced to Ireland uh, like that has escaped. Sooner or later, they will escape. You know, with the best will in the world and the best fencing in the world, it's inevitable that within a short time, probably, there will be escapes. And and the, the wolf then will cause wreck to domestic animals. I mean, Killian there a while ago, he mentioned about that he's contradicting himself in one way because he said the wolf will only kill the lame deer or the sick deer or the weak deer. And yet his idea of introducing them in is to kill deer. So I'm not, he's contradicting himself on that. Do you want to respond to that, Killian? I'm not contradicting myself at all. What the wolf does is it, it reduces the deer population in a sustainable way and it leaves behind healthy deer. Uh, at a at a, a very level population um, that is sustainable and doesn't impact trees and it doesn't impact other farmers that are crop farmers that lose fortunes of vegetables and grass to deer as well. The opinion or the the piece that I was talking about in France in the newspaper it was in a paper called La Opinion and it was called France's Deadly Wolves or Sneaky Farmers and that was the that was the piece that exposed what the farmers were doing in France, that they were claiming that these sheep were killed by wolves that actually weren't. But no, and the, 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 the fences, the fences is, is quite a good way. There are other ways of protecting animals from livestock or protecting livestock from wolves as well. The fences, improving fences. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's, it's going to be completely, um, you know, that, that we're not going to have livestock taken by wolves. Uh, but through climate change and all these other negative things that are happening, maybe the inconvenience of having a top predator back in the environment will be worth it. And I would put the question to those those two gentlemen that are on the show. If, if this guaranteed a future for your grandchildren to continue to farm on the land and would counteract some of those extreme measures like taking sheep off the land and reducing the cattle herd, etc. Would they accept it then? Would they accept the inconvenience of having to make their fences a little bit higher or putting up an electric fence or maybe putting out a dog with their sheep to protect the sheep from wolves? Would they accept it if it, if it guaranteed a future for their grandchildren to continue to farm and the rest of us to continue to live in a healthy ecosystem and in a healthy environment in Ireland? Would they accept that inconvenience then? All right, John, do you want to answer that? But should there be nothing left to farm then because you take the sheep off the land and the cattle off the land and the cows off the land and we revile the whole country? <laughs> There's not much of a future left in that for farming. But anyway, he, he hasn't responded to my query where the European Parliament and the European um, um, decision makers have downgraded the status of the wolf simply because the wolf is becoming a problem in Europe. So he's downgraded now from extremely protected just to simply protect it. So the next step will be in Europe that there will be a call on wolves because they're becoming such a problem. Killian? 
Yes, I, I do understand that they are trying to erode the protection of the wolf. The wolf is by no means overpopulating. In fact, it is unarguable scientists that alpha predators, top predators, do not overpopulate. They are not able to overpopulate. They are so intrinsically linked to nature and to their prey that as prey numbers go up, top predators increase, and then the prey numbers go back down and the top predators go down. It's intrinsically linked. But I suppose, um, Killian... A, a lot of the erosion of those laws, I just have to say, a, a lot of the erosion of those laws are not based on science. They're based on political pressure from farmers that is not based on anything other than fear and misunderstanding. And inconvenience, inconvenience to the farmer. Is it a different situation though, Killian? where, you know, if, if a farmer loses six animals, unlike in the wild where a flock of deer might lose six animals to a wolf and, and the size of the deer goes down and therefore it couldn't sustain the same number of wolves feeding off them, a farmer is likely to replace lost sheep and as a result the size of the prey, as it were, is being kept artificially high it, and it, in effect doesn't have the knock-on impact on the number of wolves that could potentially feed off it. It's, it's a very good point, but it's not. It's, it's just a theory. It, it's not being seen in, in reality in the continent. Um, uh, sheep and livestock make up a tiny, tiny proportion of wolf um, diet in the wild, and that has been looked at by taking fecal samples from wolves and checking what DNA is in their feces and livestock made up less than 1%. It appears that they prefer to stay away from people, particularly if people have electric fences, have their um, shepherd dogs in place. Um, Wolves prefer to be miles and miles away from people. We will never see wolves. I've been to the US, I've been to Canada. I've actively gone looking for wolves and I haven't been able to see them because they, they, they stay away from us. They stay away from habitation. Um, and, and, and I should point out that our neighbours on the continent are farming quite profitably alongside okay. wolves. There, there are wolves in France, uh, Spain, Portugal, Germany, Poland, even Holland and Belgium, which are smaller countries than Ireland, but have much greater populations. And they now have wolves there as well. So th- that that doesn't happen. It just simply doesn't happen. Right, There's no evidence that that happens anywhere else. We're, we're lucky in that we're not talking about this as a theory. This is actually playing out around the world in Europe and in America, and it, do, it just doesn't happen. Okay, I just want to clarify there. I was, but the the um, the term Ponzi scheme was used about uh, forestry in Ireland. All forestry in Ireland is uh, is is done in a compliant way. There's no no suggestion that any any forests are, gro- are grown in Ireland are uh, anything illegal, like a, a, a Ponzi scheme. Mary Therese Strahan, um, you've seen wolves. You've seen is it Killian's wolves you visited? Yes, um, uh, we were in Donegal uh, summer 22 and uh, we had occasion to visit Wild Ireland. Now, uh, just to say I am not here uh, in favour of Wild Ireland or in favour of returning wolves to us. I simply want to explain my experience of being there um, in Wild Ireland, which is uh, very educational, very informative. And I had never seen a wolf other than what I I might have watched on telly or whatever. Right, and what took you there? Yeah, so we were on holiday and uh, we were staying in Downings and somebody local suggested that we visit Wild Ireland. Um, one of my daughters has autism and she particularly li- she's doing photography, but she particularly likes um, animals and things that don't argue with her and cause her stress. So we went to our Wild Ireland and um, as we approached, I could hear. I mean, they're so loud. 
I thought there were 40 or 50 or more. They were just so domineering and loud. And when we got there, there were three. And I couldn't believe that there was just three of them because they made such a racket. But they were typical. I don't know if you can see the photographs I sent in, but that noise now was multiplied by a lot. It was a lovely day. Can you day hear it there in the background? I can hear it there. Well, I, I had first That's not me, by the way. <laughs> You'd probably make a very good imitation of it. However, um, but they didn't tell when we were in their presence. I mean, obviously, we weren't right. very close to them. How close did you get to they, them? So they were, you know, there's a perimeter wall and, and a fence and stuff. Um, I suppose we were maybe 20 yards away from them. They were up on the rock, as you can see. And they were typical dog behaviour, you know, nudging each other, nuzzling each other, knocking each other off, you know, playing. You didn't, you didn't like feel intimidated stuff. being 20 oh, yards away from the wolves, no? Oh, no, no, no. I was just impressed by how how amazing they are. You know, they're they're so big. Compared to, you would say, I was thinking German Shepherd kind of style, but they're way bigger than that. Their legs are so long. and But yet they look like pups playing and messing. You and know, they I, were just... Did you get close enough to dog. see their eyes? Yes, you could, we could see their eyes, yeah. And they, were, they, they certainly weren't um, uh, frightening or anything like that. They were just looking around. We have dogs, so we're familiar with kind of canine uh, carry-on as such. And uh, they were just doing what wolves do, I guess. They didn't make the noise when we were looking at them. We right. only, I only heard them as we approached. And what did your but daughter make of them? I was surprised that they stayed around. But she, see, she was happy to stay very still with her camera while we kind of walked around. She stayed there and that's how she got those photographs um, because it, to get three wolves... <laughs> Or to, even to get three dogs in a position to get a photograph of them is, you know. So it took a while. She waited and waited, but she got the shots and uh, she was proud of herself. Obviously, we didn't see them initially until we got home and she showed us. I didn't see them immediately when she had taken them. Right. It was only later on when she when she uh, looked at them digitally on her laptop or whatever. And I thought, oh, they're nice. But um but generally, even apart from the wolves, there was a, a bear in there somewhere. There was other animals that had been rescued. And the whole place is just, it's just amazing. And it's right up on the mountain. But I'd say that the neighbours definitely hear these boys shouting or girls. Or right. I'm sure what, the, Come here, what before, they were. But, uh, before I let yeah. you go, Mary Therese, um, would you like to see them out and about on the forest paths of the country if you were out walking in the woods? Well, I personally, you know, I don't know anything about how wolves survive, but based on um, the the guy from Wild Ireland there, sorry, I've forgotten his name. Killian. Um, you know, Killian, they stay away from us. They're not ready to pounce like as we would have Red Riding Hood and the wolf in the forest waiting for her. You know, that, that they seem to be that, you know, as he says, the future is reliant on predators that are going to uh, call our, our uh, um, deer and whatever else needs needs uh, reducing in the population for us all. You know, we right. all share this planet and so do the wolves. So okay. for, <laughs> they have to play their part. For a moment That's I misheard the you I there. I, I thought I heard you say that they would help us cull our beer, but I think there's probably enough enough animals in this country looking after that particular thing. Of course, you were talking about deer. All right, we're going to take a break. Yeah. We're back in a minute. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. 
Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. Call him on Mungo and here, get us on 51551 for your text. Joe at rt.ie for your emails or WhatsApp us 087-484-8888 or from uh, Northern Ireland or anywhere else uh, in Britain. You can get us on 0845-7853-3333. Leanne, uh, good afternoon to you. Hi, how are you, Joe? Uh, you were at a gig last Tuesday. Tell us what happened when you came out. Yes, so myself and my boyfriend, we went to a gig on Vicker Street there. And when it was finished, we said, I'm sure we'll head up towards George Street and have a few drinks. So on our way, anyway, around the Christchurch area, we came across a man on the ground being attacked by four or five young Irish men. Um, they looked to be Irish. Um, they, it was quite brutal. They were kicking and punching him. They also had a knife with them as well, and they were attacking the man on the ground um, with the knife. Um, at this point, a taxi actually intervened when, when we arrived. So they, uh, very brave people, came out and intervened and kind of was in kind of firing rain and stopped what was going on. So the, anyway, they kind of ran off and um, they were kind of helping them um, straight away. An ambulance was called. We could see there that the man was actually... Um, his lip was cut open with what looked to be from the knife. Um, he was very, very shaken up. He was a middle-aged, um, non-national uh, man, and he was he was clearly very confused and shaken up. We were all kind of shaken up about the whole thing. The guys that were helping out, they were they were so so good. They were actually a group of English people um, as well, so they were helping out. We also rang the ambulance as well but there were so many people kind of ringing the ambulance and stuff like that so myself and my boyfriend we did what we could and to kind of keep ourselves safe and um, we kind of just when we realized then that and we knew that your man was going to be okay and he was in he was in good hands we kind of went off ourselves because the kind of comes we kind of want to keep ourselves safe as well and even on the way as well my boyfriend actually said to me i actually think that's them across the road and we just kept walking. And how close um, were you to the incident? I mean, you're, you're leaving Vicker Street and you, you were heading towards somewhere else in, in the city centre. Yeah, just, how Did it just yeah. break out in front of you or did you happen upon it, it already in like, progress? It was like, it happened so quickly. I actually think we came, it happened and it was finished by the time we were very close to it. It, it happened so quickly. I'd say what happened was it happened and the guys then just jumped straight out of the taxi and the guys then just run, ran off then. So it was it, it it was just so quick. It was so quick. And then the guys actually, it actually happened at Christchurch there just on the road. So the guys picked your man up and brought him to the path then. And then, then we kind of then wanted to make sure that he was okay and he was kind of getting looked after and wanted to see because... There's so much commotion going around, going around and stuff. People kind of shouting. Everyone was quite distressed. And did, um, did he appear to be somebody who was rough sleeping, or you know, did could was there any evidence to, as to what his circumstances were when you happened across him? No, he was all dressed in kind of dark clothes. He had a backpack on him. He had a woolly hat on him. He was using that then to cover up his face because he was just so badly injured with his with his lip. He clearly needed 
medical assistance um, with that and God bless him. I think he was looking for his phone and everything and just was so disorientated and just wanted to kind of be left alone. But there was, I actually think... Right, uh, did he appear to have uh, been robbed? Um, I, I actually wouldn't know because I wasn't near the... I, he sure. came, they brought him over, so I wouldn't. But um, he had slashes on his um, on his jacket from the knife as well. So because the guy, how how, how big were you able to see? I kind of wasn't really that close. Um, my boyfriend kind of wouldn't let me that close, which is fair enough. But um, we were just kind of just making sure that he was okay. But you could clearly see by the damage with his face, like oh, he was honestly. If it wasn't for the people that came out of the taxi that time. I don't know. It's hard to know what could have happened. Really. You reckon it had those English guys not jumped out of the taxi, the yeah. attack might have gone on for longer? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And oh, what did yeah. they do to chase those four or five guys away? Did you know? Did they shout? Did they make a run at them? Was it a physical altercation? Um, the, there was definitely a man and a woman there anyway, and a guy just shouted at them and kind of was about to take off his jacket. He was, just, he was ready. He was, he was ready to go and Funny enough, when it was when we were walking up, my first incident was to shout and be like, "Get off him or whatever." Then, but then, very soon after, my second thought was, "I if I get involved, I'm putting myself and my boyfriend in danger here." Do you know that I was just so sad that would be your second thought because it would be in my nature to jump in. But now with just with, with seeing that and and uh, well, with seeing the nice. severity of it, yeah, yeah, you you're you're with you're, you don't have a chance. You know? And the English tourist, was it a mix of men and women, did you say, or was it all guys? Or who, uh, who? There was a woman there, and there was, I think, maybe one or two men. So they obviously were out having, having drinks. They could have been at the gig, you know, you don't know. And then they were just, I'd say, driving by, saw happened, jumped out. And are you living in Dublin city centre yourself? I mean, is this something you've I'm seen not, before? No. You're not, no. You were just visiting. And were you, were you staying, or were you going to be travelling home that I was evening? Staying in a, a hotel, I couldn't tell you the name of it now, but right. I'm staying well, in a, yeah, fine, yeah. a, a hotel near uh, near there or wherever. Right. You know, my okay. boyfriend would know where. <laughs> okay. And what was the reaction of the other people? Like, was it a well lit area? Was there, you know, a fair crowd of people around it when was, this happened? It was just right there at Christchurch, so it wasn't dark. Like the street and stuff would be dark, but it was right. Like it was kind of near the path. There was street lights there, and. Um, but like I said, it happened so quickly. And then when we when we were walking then towards Georgia Street, like that would be kind of dark enough. I but I was just like shaking. We both were just like, what what just happened? Kind of thing. Um, because you hear about them kind of things, you de- you never realise they're going to be the one to witness it. And um, in that sense, and when when you see it happen, then in front of you, you're just like, oh, like it, it it makes you actually think twice about going out now to town. I don't really? think I'll actually be, yes, I actually don't think I'll be sentenced, but which is really sad to say, because I remember in secondary school, me and the girls, we all would have, like, went to town, went up, got the bus up from Minute, went up and had a few drinks, got the night, like, the late bus then home back to Minute. The night link, and, yeah. What is that, yeah, the, six, the 66, you, is it? Yeah, 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 that one, yeah. And fair enough, you, you know, you'd have your wits about you and, you know, you'd be, you know, you'd obviously be like, oh, you know, be safe and stuff. You'd be texting your mum. You'd be ringing your mum on the way home, making sure the usual stuff that you have to do to keep yourself safe. But this is another level. Like, if I knew that this was going on back at the, the, when we were going to discos or whatever, I wouldn't be gone. It was completely right. It was a game, oh, and it was a game changer for you. I, I mean, did yeah. you sit down afterwards and talk it out with your boyfriend? How long did we it take you? Would you say recover to recover from what you'd witnessed? 
I think I, I think it actually probably would have taken me longer, but because we had such a good night and then it kind of happened, we were like, we probably sat down for, I'd say, a good hour, maybe more, and just was chatting about the whole lot of it and how just, how it's a pity that uh, Dublin has come, and not even just Dublin, but wherever you're, you're talking about has come to that. Because even like we would have, even my, me and my family, we would have went up during Christmas time. Like we would be kind of from there and then kind of went up on the bus or on the train. And it would have been great. And it would be a great, great buzz around the place. But it's just uh, now right. we're, we're saying kind of, we're not really saying that much anymore really about right. Well, we well you've funded. obviously still not fully recovered. I mean, if your attitude towards going out in Dublin yeah. has been altered because of your sense of safety in the city centre, then, yeah. then we, we got on to the Gardaí about this after after you uh, got in contact with us. They say they're investigating this alleged assault and that uh, the man was later taken to hospital and uh, investigations are ongoing. So, um, I mean, I, I hopefully... They'll, they'll reach some kind of a success, successful conclusion on that. Would you say in the area uh, there would have been CCTV or, you know, would there be people, would there have been enough people around if they if they were looking for witnesses uh, to, to get witnesses for their investigation? I would say so. I'd say if it was put out there, um, I'd like to think that that would be, uh, that that would happen. Yeah, most definitely. Like I said, I don't know if the guys would know much about the area or even the radio show or anything, because you don't know if they were travelling from overseas or if they're staying here or what. Um, but there was definitely witnesses there anyway. Um, I can. But do you know what it, it happened? So by the time the guys went off, like you couldn't actually be near them. The guys, uh, the people that you actually did help, they, you, weren't, you couldn't see their faces. They all had their hubs up and then they ran fairly quick after they were, they were shouted at. They just ran. These are the guys who'd, who'd, uh, who'd mounted the attack. And did they hang around? Yeah. How far did they go? Did they keep an eye on the scene? Did they hang around in the I area? Because you mentioned, I think your boyfriend thought he saw them yeah. across the street. Yeah, like we were, we would have been there, I'd say between half ten, eleven, because I actually rang the guards at around 11 o'clock. So we would have left the scene then shortly after that then, so maybe quarter past 11 but I'd say it was a good maybe 20 minutes and 20 minutes later, we were like, is that them across the road? Do you know? So they, I'd say they were, they were near, but not too near. And do you, think, do you think it was them or do you think at that stage you were just hyper vigilant and looking at anybody we, who was dressed similarly and feeling yeah, a bit uncomfortable? Been, but they were very loud and stuff like that and, and, um, and stuff. Now, look, I don't know. I don't actually, I, I wasn't going to stay around and, and look at their faces or anything, do you know, that kind of way because then, you have to, you just, it's more of a word of warning really just for people out there to, to be safe. And I'm not saying, you know, don't go out or anything like that, That's, you know, because that's such a pity because we shouldn't really be viewing it like that. Yeah, sure. I mean, you'd obviously, you'd enjoyed the gig yourself. You said even yeah, e- yeah, even the experience hard. of the gig yeah. uh, helped yeah. with the kind of the, the, the post-attack recovery that, you know, you, you had begun the yeah. night so well that yeah. it helped. Exactly. I'd say if we didn't go to the gig... Um, I know myself I'd be like no going home like I'm not staying out like but uh, we said no look we're out like we booked this last year do you know that kind of we were really really looking forward to it and we said you know we're not going to let this ruin our night do you know but of course we were just thinking about the man and uh, we couldn't see I'm so glad now you're after that you did that you were able to follow it up and stuff like that because it was so hard then for us to be like who do we ring how do we go about this how can we check because we didn't really know your man's name, I don't think he even had a phone on him. I think he was trying to look for that. 
And so, so um, we, right, we well, were just hoping that he was okay. That was our main real concern about it. Right, well, um, we wish him we wish him a good recovery, whoever and wherever he is. And Leanne, thanks very much for talking to us. We're we're back in a minute. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Hello, Mumunga, and here 51551 for your text. Joe at rt.ie for your emails. WhatsApp us 087 484 or if you're WhatsApping us from Northern Ireland or Britain, you can get us on 08457 Rebecca O'Keefe, good afternoon to you. Hi, how are you? Um, good, thanks. And yourself? Good, thanks for having me on. Good. Uh, yeah, you got in contact with this. The Irish women's basketball team is due to play Israel in the neutral venue of Riga in Latvia on February 8th. You don't want them to take part. Why not? No. So um, Ireland was, was due to play in Tel Aviv in November, but they postponed the game and they cited their and staff welfare as the primary concern. And then they requested this neutral venue. So it has been refixed and they have confirmed that they will participate. Um, so I actually, I just want to preface this by saying, so I am actually um, a basketball player. I love basketball. I love how much the sport has grown and progressed, especially on the international scene. And I'm just feeling very disappointed as a member of this community. And so I really wish the organisation would take a moral stand here because like, I believe that by competing against Israel, we are complicit supporting the atrocities currently being carried out by Israel in Palestine. And the more we engage and normalise what's happening, the more complicit we are. All right. And, you know, in terms of the, the moral stance you're thinking of taking, is this apply, in your mind, only to Israel or would you apply it equally to other states where, about whom there are human rights concerns? Well, no, we have to be across the board. Of course, you have to be consistent in, in what you're calling out. But I, I think as well, um, so... I am also a peace activist and author with a specific focus on the Arab region and I concentrate on human rights and civil resistance. So I study this, I work in this field and I do want to say that I've thought about this strategically and while calling for a boycott, um, I have tied it to an international petition calling for a suspension of Israel from sporting tournaments, which has over 18,000 signatures. I've also set this within a precedent and FIBA, the governing body of basketball, actually removed Russia and its ally Belarus in 2022 from international competitions. And I just think it's very hypocritical to continue Israel's participation because Israel, as we know, is an occupying colonial apartheid regime that is currently committing genocide against Palestinians. Well, that, that's, I mean, so that's, I think, that's, that, yeah, that's, that, that's certainly your opinion on it. The, the International yeah. Criminal Court who have taken jurisdiction of human rights abuses and crimes against humanity in the Palestinian territories and, and committed outside of the Palestinian territories by people from Palestinian territories, they have yet to adjudicate on whether or not the description you've given of it is, is, is fulfilled. Of course, but I also do want to say that the ICJ, which is the International Court of Justice, has just approved a hearing by South Africa who have um, proposed that Israel be held accountable for acts of um, crimes against humanity, war crimes and genocide. So, yes, there are definitely bodies and international mechanisms for this. And so I am, I do want to reiterate, I am basing my opinion in in what I study and what I work in Um yeah. So sure. And would you draw any that. distinction between, you know, Russia and Belarus, as you mentioned, uh, that was prompted by Russia's 
uh, unexpected invasion of Ukraine. They had already occupied Crimea and parts of Donetsk and Luhansk, but Russia was the aggressor in that case. In the current round of the conflict that's going on at the moment where Israel is currently engaged in uh, attacks in the in Gaza and to a lesser extent Hamas uh, shooting rockets back. Um, do you, would you accept that that doesn't fit quite the same category because Israel was attacked on October 7th. There were around 900 civilians killed. There are credible allegations of sexual violence against women. And so Israel however you view the proportionality of their response, there was a reason why this round of the conflict kicked off. So I, I take your point, and this is often a common a common refrain, but um, I just want to remind you that this did not start on October 7th. So I need to put this in the context that this violence has been taking place and killing and violence has been perpetrated by Israel for 75 years prior to October 7th. So I condemn all this force of killing and violence, but we do have to say that the IOF has per- perpetrated disproportionate killing and violence prior to October seventh. And I, I think if you do believe that Israel has self-defence, I think they have definitely gone far beyond self-defence. But I think to get back to my point, though, I think by calling for a boycott, boycotts work. I think I want Basfalar to withdraw participation immediately. I want Basel Iron to issue a statement to FIBA calling for the withdrawal of Israel from all international competitions. You do, you do think boycotts work, do you? I do, because not only do they show solidarity, they condemn on an international stage rejection and condemnation of violent colonial campaigns. And I think I need to reference, you know, apartheid South Africa as, a, as a, an example of this, which also had, you know, boycotts, peaceful protests, um, and they also had um, sure, but people. You also uh, you, you also had the boycott of the 1980 Moscow Olympics over the invasion of Afghanistan, and uh, the Soviet Union remained in occupation in Afghanistan for the guts of a further decade. So they can be effective in some cases, but was South Africa different in terms of the other pressures that were brought to bear outside of the sporting boycott? But if we take boycotts theoretically. And if we have whatever power, whatever action is in our power, do you not think we should do that? Do you not think we should try everything that is in our power possible? Well, it, to be honest, it, 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 it neither matters nor am, I, nor am I allowed under the Broadcasting Act to tell you what I think. But Tommy Roddy <laughs> has an opinion on, on it. Uh, Tommy, what do you think of sports boycotts? Yeah, well, unlike um, your caller there, sorry, what's Rebecca, her name again? Rebecca, yeah. Rebecca, Rebecca. yeah. Um, yeah, oh, I'm not a basketball player. In fact, I, I don't play any sports. I would be a, a huge fan of all kinds of sports, and I get great enjoyment out of watching, you know, a, a huge range of sports. Um, I would actually disagree with Rebecca um, because I, I don't think it's a good thing to actually get sports tied up in um in political events um you know this this is a topic you've you've mentioned it there column um about different boycotts that have happened um and calls for boycotts um o- over the years uh, we've had it there as you mentioned uh, the Russia with the Olympics and it came up there a couple of years ago as regards uh, the world cup in Qatar uh, some people were saying that it shouldn't be allowed and shouldn't be happening there. And uh, I was saying to 
your researcher, um, a journalist from the Irish Independent, Ian O'Doherty, wrote um, that he wasn't going to watch any of the matches, even though he said that he's a big sports fan, but he would not watch any of the games simply because of where they're being held. And I read afterwards he wrote that he didn't watch any of the games and he didn't uh, regret his decision. And I kind of wonder really what did it achieve. But leaving that aside, there is the whole thing of the actual players themselves. You know, most, or not most, but all sporting people, they just want to play their sport. They're not involved in politics. And if they do hold political views, they don't express them because simply they just want to play their sport. And the reality is that a neutral venue has been found and, you know, okay, they will play the the game while it's scheduled to go ahead. But the reality is that if Basketball Ireland do not fulfil that fixture, they will be liable to a fine and also their chances of actually qualifying for the actual tournament, this is a qualifying game, um, will be actually diminished as well. So it's really harming them, the ordinary uh, players and the ordinary, the ordinary people who just want to play their sport. Um, they'll, they'll be the people that will be harmed. And you're mentioning there about, um, you know, um, one of the, the, the Moscow Olympics and, and that kind of thing. And, and really, at the end of the day, do these, do these boycotts work? And, and personally, I don't think to do. All right. Uh, Rebecca, just on the issue, I suppose, of, of, uh, of the impact on, on Ireland and, and the qualification, mm-hmm. but also, I suppose, if Israel get a bye, they're more likely to have an easier path to qualification and play against teams who won't be boycotting them. You'd advance, I suppose, their progress to the competition they're trying to qualify for more quickly. Yeah, no, and like, I am a sports person as well, so I do understand. I definitely understand that. I just think that currently no one has played Israel, so we do actually have an opportunity here. And I also think Basketball Ireland has put the players in a tight spot now. Like, had they taken a stand, the players would now need to be taking this moral decision. But, I, okay, if they do fulfil the fixture, what are, are there going to be security arrangements for the players? Will they ensure welfare? Will it be televised on our national broadcaster? Will players be given any support if they receive backlash? Like, I think there's just a lot more questions now that I have if they do... It, will players be penalised if they refuse to play? So I do have, a, like, questions. And if they incur a fine travelling and security and arrangements like what what size of fine are we talking about and future participation yeah but I mean I'm I'm arguing for the moral case okay, anyway. well, like, can, will you feel good shaking an Israeli's hand okay well Basketball Ireland says it will be fulfilling the Group B fixture as forfeiting the game would lead to very significant fine from FIBA Europe that's the governing body for basketball and could put at serious risk our participation in the FIBA Women's Eurobasket 2025 qualifiers and exclusion from the FIBA Women's Eurobasket 2027 qualifiers I mean but it, it, Rebecca the there, there, there are Irish players who may be more than happy uh, to shake hands at the beginning of a match and, and yes, not share and the issue. Totally their, that's totally their prerogative. Absolutely. I'm just raising this as an option and I'm more than happy to talk to people about it if they want to talk to me about it because there are options. And I think while that other caller says, you know, leave, Tommy, yeah. poli- or leave politics out of Tommy, sorry, well, leave politics out of sports, that's absolutely people's prerogative. 
but it also is a good opportunity and there's many examples of sports stars like LeBron James that just showed up and dribble. Lewis Hamilton was very vocal. Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick would take him a knee. Like, okay, if they do fulfil the fixture, maybe they could think about making a statement at the game. Do they do tip off and then sit down? Like, you know, there, there are, what I'm saying is there are options. All right. Oh, well, we get the Department of Sport. We've also uh, been on to them. They say in the relation to the setting or fulfilment of sporting fixtures by any sporting organisation, including Basketball Ireland, neither the Minister nor the Department has any role in this regard. Such matters are ultimately a decision for the sporting organisations. We're back with more on this in a minute. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy! Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Colm O'Mungan here. We're talking to Rebecca O'Keefe, herself a basketballer, who I think, Rebecca, represented, if not captained Ireland at uh, underage level, was it? I did indeed, yeah. Yeah, and you're calling for Ireland to boycott the fixture against Israel, a qualification fixture for Eurobasket 2025. It's going to take place on February the 8th in the neutral venue of Riga in Latvia. Paul Kenny, uh, you've been listening to what Rebecca and her other caller Tommy have been saying, but on Rebecca's call to to boycott this fixture, what do you make of it? Yeah, it's it's yet again, it's uh, selective condemnation, which... Um, uh, like. Like I spoke to a researcher there before I came on and I was basically talking about it reminds me of the selective condemnation when we had our own troubles here. Um, I find it's definitely a distinct lack of condemnation from most of the pro-Palestinian lobby here in condemning the October 7th. Well, she did, say, she did say a few moments ago when I asked her, would she have con- similar concerns about any organisation or any country about uh, which human rights concerns had been raised? And she said she would. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but the thing is, uh, 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 do you ever notice, Colin, though, it's never ever very, very much vocal with the pro-Palestinian lobby. The pro-Palestinian lobby are very selective in their condemnation. We have the, we have the left here as well, um, the far left, we'll, 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 we'll say, um, who continually, um, are, when they're asked about do they condemn the October 7 massacres, and they refuse to say that. They, they, refuse, they refuse to condemn it on the basis that... Um, you know, oh, it's all in a vacuum. It's 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 all part of a conflict. It, it reminds me very much of the 70s and the 80s when we had our own problems here with the provisional IRA, and very similar approach was taken towards the uh, provisional IRA in people refusing to condemn the atrocities of, that they carried out. You know, because it was all considered, oh, it's all part of a conflict. Whereas I I, I was one who very much condemned what they were doing. Uh, and I thought that, it, like, like, like to take it, to take to, to go back to right. the question about boycotting, are, are are the states, are other states going to be boycotted in this conflict? Will will Lebanon, will Lebanon, whose government, who 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 basically has Hamas, uh, will uh, other Palestinian groups? I think in, in the case of Lebanon, you might mean Hezbollah are are are, are part of uh, the political uh, landscape in, in Lebanon. Is that it? Oh yeah, very much. Yeah. Sorry. Oh yes. No, yes. You, see, you said Hamas. That, that, you, you, you possibly sorry, mean he- Hezbollah. Apologies, yeah. Colum. Apologies, Colum. I meant to say Hamas. Sorry, Hamas in Lebanon. Now, okay, you can debate over Gaza. Is Gaza a country? Uh, it's Palestinian territory. Yes, it is part of what uh, what what Palestine. You know, it is it is it is a section. It you could be regarded. Well, what as would you what would you say is acceptable moral pressure to exercise in order to say? 
end the occupation or halt the building of settlements which are illegal under international law or the detention oh, yeah, of children great. or arbitrary detention? What would your tactic be oh, yeah. if not oh, something yeah, oh, yeah. as if, if not something that is essentially non-violent moral pressure like what uh, Rebecca is advocating? Yeah, oh, of course, I, I agree. I don't support the, I would not be a supporter of the current Israeli government. I believe in a two-state solution. The problem here is that a lot of the Palestinian lobby here do not believe in a two-state solution because the premise is that Israel is an occupying power. I don't believe it is an occupier. I believe Israel has a right to exist. I do agree with you on the settlements. I do agree with you on that. I agree the settlement, we do have to come to we have to come to the peace table here, but it, it, it's just that I want people to start thinking about the menace that Hamas propose to Hamas are. Right, I just I, Hamas, I, 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 before you get into that, Paul, I just want to go back to Rebecca on uh, on 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 your belief that what she's she's doing is selective condemnation. Now, Rebecca, do you want to respond to that? Well, I just want to reiterate that I have said I've condemned. I hold condemnation for all, but this is about proportionality. This is about history. This is about context. I think the minute we start getting into the what aboutery, valuable lives are lost. And more and of more course. lives are being killed. So once we get into the what aboutery, and it takes away and distracts from meaningful action taking place, and I'm proposing peaceful solutions, meaningful action. And I think when we get into this line of questioning, it just takes away and distracts. And I think... Right. I agree, yeah. Rebecca. In fact, in fact, Rebecca, we probably agree on more than we disagree on, which is good. And in fact, I, I, I think that's what's, that's what's needed if we want to have a two-state solution. My issue is with most of the Palestinian lobby here is, I believe it's been hijacked by, a very, by, by extremists who won't, who won't, unlike you, won't condemn the October 7th massacres, unlike you, who, who don't want to see peace. Right. Like, let's face it. Well, you know, I, I think that's a very... That's a very big generalisation. I think the Palestinian solidarity community here is amazing and they're doing phenomenal work. So I do want to say that. And I think, yeah, if you're getting... But if you were to say... Just let Rebecca finish Rebecca, and let you back in, Paul. Hang oh, on a sorry, second. Yeah. Apologies, yeah. apologies, apologies. And as well, like, you're talking about two-state solution. You're talking about this, that, the other. Like, yes, that is all relevant conversation. But what I'm talking about right now, like, right now we need ceasefire. Right now we need that. So this is one tool that we can use to apply political international pressure for this to happen. All right. So that's, Paul, and then you need I, to end Paul, I don't, I don't think, Paul, on the general principle I, of, of, of using sport to apply pressure as a peaceful means of furthering a cause, do you see a role for it? I do. I, I do see a role for it. I, I generally speak in... I, I find when you get into boycotts, it's kind of like what the gentleman was talking about earlier. Um, Tommy, you do yeah. get into a situation where, Tommy, um, you know, sport is supposed to be separate from all of this. But I do understand where politics can get involved. And sometimes I, I can, if an issue is big enough, um, I can see how it can creep into it. But I just feel my, my like, I know, boycotting. Yeah, I do see it. I do see it does have a role. Um, I've mixed feelings about about its effectiveness and whether it, whether it, well, I, not so much its effectiveness, but it, whether it should be used as a tool within sport, right. which is supposed to be removed from politics. Now, it's, but, I, I, again, I should I should say that the reason that, and Re, I think Rebecca, you might have mentioned it yourself at the outset, but the reason that the the game is being played in Riga in Latvia is the uh, Irish basketball uh, governing body said that basketball Ireland that is 
said that they wouldn't be able to play the match in Israel because Department of Foreign Affairs advice had advised against travelling to the region, any unnecessary travel to the region. So back in November, the Israeli Basketball uh, Association issued a statement saying that they approached the Irish Federation with the aim of changing uh, home teams, in other words, playing the match in Ireland. They said they regretted the Irish uh, are not standing by us. This is from the Israeli Basketball Association. Are not uh, are not standing by us and not responding in the spirit of sports as many other associations and groups have throughout Europe. It goes on to say the union thanks FIBA Europe, that's the umbrella body for European basketball, for helping us and the Latvian Association as well for hosting the women's team as they have been doing for more than a year and a half with the Ukrainian national teams and showing they are made of the best of human material. What do you think of that phraseology, Paul? I touch it. Yeah, I, I thought you were actually aiming no, that no, question. No, I, I was I'll, just, there for a minute well, I'll, I'll tell you what, you have a think about it and I'll ask Rebecca. What do you think of the, the phraseology there saying, that, I suppose, an implicit contrast between the approach of the Irish and the Latvian Association uh, saying they're they're made of the best of human material. I think it's inflammatory, but it's very predictable from the Israeli state because they have a huge propaganda machine. And I think gathering or clinging on to whatever allies they have or pressuring people into allies is kind of their MO. So I think that is very interesting right. phrases, as you mentioned, pointed out, because I want to say, like, mm. in 90 days, 30,676 Palestinians were killed by Israel. And not to reduce Palestinians in numbers by any means, but if that's their definition of you're, humanity... You're, you're, you're including the, the, the number of this figure of 7,000 that are assumed to be that are missing, assumed to be buried under the rubble and deceased in your figures for those who have been killed in the current conflict, this are will, you? Yeah, this is according to Euromed, Euromed stats. Right. But uh, can I ask a question there as well, Tara? I can pose another, <coughs> something to ponder on. Um, Second World War uh, resulted in um, bombing raids taking place. Everybody's familiar with the RAF and the American Air Force who bombed, pretty dra- dramatically bombed the hell out of uh, Tokyo Germany. and Dresden specifically. Now, yeah, Dresden, exactly, Colin. Thanks to that. Um, you know, again, you look at proportionality there. Okay, you're, you, if the argument for proportionality is used in a Second World War context, you could argue that the, you know Nazi Germany was in the right and the Allies were in the wrong. So, well, you know, is, is it to it, argue that, Paul? Because, of the, you know, the, uh, 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 any party to a conflict regarding of the, the righteousness of the cause they began with can still be guilty of atrocities in, in the context of a war. Their, their overall, the overall conduct of the war may not be on the side of, of evil, but on, on the individual acts within their conduct can be war crimes. Yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't see that. I, I, I do see that argument. I, I do see that argument, but <clears throat> if... Can I interject, I, I suppose, that's okay? Yeah, oh, go ahead. Yeah, you can, Rebecca, just go on. I just want to say that, well, it's not really an argument. Like, war has rules. There are definite breaches of international rules, humanitarian rules, rules of war. Um, there are very definite rules there, and proportionality in international law is to place a limit on people. So the, just want to point out that there are definite right. rules. To, to, get, are to, to get back to your original point though, Rebecca, namely using sport as, a, I suppose, as a, to apply pressure, 
in order to achieve a ceasefire. Ireland of all countries has been singled out by Israel as being seen as not being with them uh, along with very few other countries. Ireland, particularly in a European context, uh, is seen as in the minds of the Israeli government, the current Israeli government has been anti-Israel. Why would they care about Ireland boycotting when they've already put us in, in I suppose, the, the not with Israel column when they look at, at how states are in the world? Well, Ireland has a deep history and tradition of solidarity with Palestinians due to our own context and history. And I think we are actually very influential on an international stage. And by us making this stand and such a, a move, bearing in mind, no one has played Israel yet in this competition window. By us making a move, it could influence so many more countries, people to make a stand, to take action. Like no action is too small. And I want to reiterate that. No action is too small. And can I think I, them singling us out. Yeah, go right, on. Paul. Sorry, right. Can I just, I don't know, this, 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 I know this is coming to a conclusion. I know this conversation, but I'd just like to add one point, which is slightly a by the way. But my question to people who are staunchly opposing Israel and their conduct in, the, in, in this conflict, how would they, as as people who want to see peace and want to see a two-state solution, how would they see, what's the solution to getting rid of um, a fascist organisation uh, like Hamas? How do you rid suppose, the world of fascism? I suppose we, 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 in, 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 the, in the three and a half or so minutes that are left to us uh, on the programme, uh, I don't think we're going to get to that. But I do want to just get back to, uh, to Tommy on this. Listening to, uh, to what you've heard from Paul and Rebecca, Tommy, uh, has, has your view of, as to whether or not Ireland should fulfil that fixture changed? Uh, no, my view hasn't changed, although, to be honest with you, I would actually see very good points from, from both Rebecca and Paul. Um, but I, I just wanted to make one point, that there are other Irish sporting bodies fulfilling uh, their sporting fixtures with Israel at the moment. So these things are going going ahead. No, my view hasn't changed. I don't, I don't think sport should be singled out and I don't think it's right to even put pressure on the actual players themselves. So I would actually support this fixture and hopefully it, if it's televised, I'll be watching it and enjoy it. Okay, Rebecca, Paul, Tommy, thanks very much. We're back in a minute. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe! Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. Column on one guy and here, 51551 for your text. Joe at rte.ie for your emails. WhatsApp us 087-484-8888. You can get us from Northern Ireland or Britain on 0845-7853-3333. Now, I want to just get you to a couple of those statements. As I said, we did talk to the Department of Sport. I just want to give you a bit more detail from that statement. It said, in relation to the setting or fulfilment of sporting fixtures by any sporting organisation, including Basketball Ireland, neither the Minister nor the Department has any role in this regard. Such matters are ultimately a decision for sporting organisations themselves, which are independent and autonomous entities. Issues regarding the participation by individuals and teams in international sporting competitions are a matter for the relevant international 
governing bodies of sport. Now, Basketball Ireland has also, as I say, given us a statement. It said it acknowledges the ongoing concerns and sentiment around FIBA Women's Eurobasket 2025 qualifier against Israel. We have been in ongoing liaison with coaching staff and players regarding this fixture since the conflict in the region began. Basketball Ireland has been in constant communication with FIBA Europe around this fixture, stating that we would be unable to travel to Israel with player and staff welfare our primary concern. The fixture, which was originally due to take place in Israel in November, was postponed until February the 8th and will be held at the neutral venue of Riga, Latvia, at Basketball Ireland's request. They'll be fulfilling the Group E fixture as forfeiting the game would lead to a significant fine from FIBA Europe and could put at serious risk our participation in the FIBA Women's Eurobasket 2025 qualifiers and exclusion from the FIBA Women's Eurobasket 2027 qualifiers. Other sporting entities have continued to participate in fixtures with Israel, something which they say Tishuk Leo Varadkar recently acknowledged. Now, that's our lot for today. On sound was Liam Mullen, BCO broadcast coordinator, should I say, was Shane Galvin. The producer today was Siobhan Hogan. Radarcy's next. 0818-715-815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie.